Hello, and welcome to this special episode of the Technicast, which we recorded at the Techne Congress held at Loughborough University in July. The theme is Back to the Future and how looking back can help us move forward. For the next 40 minutes or so, our guest speakers will be focusing on utopia, or rather, utopias and the commons, and how these notions fit into the contemporary moment. After these contributions, you'll be able to listen back to the panel discussion from the Congress. In the second part, Rafael Cabo will juxtapose an analysis of commons utopias in literature and what he calls narratives of disaster communism with our very current crisis, the COVID-19 pandemic. But first, Tamara de Groot and Robin van den Acker historicize utopia in society, education and the arts. They discuss how a move from the disimagination machine, or from an unimaginative structure of feeling at the end of the last century, made way for a re-emergence of the imagination of utopian futures. But they also question where utopia as a process without a blueprint might take us. Robin van den Acker is a senior lecturer in continental philosophy and cultural studies at Erasmus University College in Rotterdam. He is a co-editor of Metamodernism, Historicity, Affect and Depth and co-founder of the research platform Notes on Metamodernism, which analyzes the aesthetics and culture of the post-postmodern moment. Tamara de Groot is involved in the development of experimental transdisciplinary education at the Rotterdam Arts and Sciences Lab. She's currently writing her PhD dissertation on this collaborative design process, with a focus on space-time relations in critical pedagogical practices. In her educational practice, she works with non-mainstream science fiction and the notion of world-making to encourage students to question how we construct the narratives of the future, past and present. Here is their conversation now. Hey, Tamara. Hey, Robin. We have been uh, asked to reflect upon the notions of utopia and the commons. What are your first associations? Well, the first thing that I was thinking of also because I've been working on developing a new type of education within the framework of uh, the Rotterdam Arts and Sciences Lab is the work by Bell Hooks and specifically from her work from 1994, Teaching to Transgress, when she says that the academy is not paradise, but she sees learning as a place where paradise can be created. And she points specifically to the classroom as a place where the potentialities can arise to create paradise. And I like to think with well, her work, but also specifically this quote as kind of in the middle somewhere of a larger development in relation to uh, critical pedagogies, uh, experimental pedagogies, how we do education also now, today, and might do so in the future as uh, not necessarily a turning point, but something where things come together. Because, of course, her work is influenced by Paulo Freire's uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed very much, and she criticizes also his his lack of acknowledging women's positions and the role of patriarchy, for example. And she proposes a much more intersectional approach to pedagogy and to critical pedagogy. And Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed came out in 1968, and there is quite a resurgence after that you know, in writings and practices surrounding critical pedagogies in the 70s and the 80s. Then we also see this trajectory you know, extend out of the, the 80s, of course, into the 90s with Hooks, 
sort of following parallels to the opening up of the utopian genre in science fiction. So as a literary text where different voices start to enter in the form of feminist utopias, African-American authors uh, writing utopian texts. And then, of course, in the 80s and the 90s, this turns quite dystopian. And we see the same happening, actually, in education, where the emphasis is put more and more on uh, measurement, on accountability, uh, you know, extensive learning objectives, as Henri Giroux says, the kind of you know, disimagination machine at work in higher education. And this continues, I think, throughout the 90s into the 2000s, where then we start to see these reemergence of the concept of utopia also with relation to pedagogy and you know, a range in both research and practices, educational practices of experimental and critical pedagogical strategies and tactics. So, you know, very intersectional decolonial pedagogies, the influence of new materialist thinking, post-human approaches, which have a specific aim, social change, transformation on both kind of an individual and a collective level towards more socially and ecologically just worlds. So really the intersection of, of these two and to create these new ways of, of knowing and being. Uh, through new relationalities and utopian pedagogy, if we can call it that, because of course it's a multitude of different kind of influences and, and, and practices as creating these kind of breathing spaces, these openings in, in the educational system. Mm. And this at the same time, but I think you can also further elaborate on this, um, this idea of a utopia, not, not anymore as this totalizing system. Um, but much more as a process, which is emphasized. But at the same time, slowly, kind of a criticism into this is also or a tension between utopia only as process and utopia as a vision of the future starts to arise. Mm. So you're basically seeing a parallel sort of development, both in the literary texts that are in the 80s and 90s gearing towards dystopian science fiction, um, I'm, I'm thinking here of uh, Gibson, for instance, uh, yeah. also mostly uh, white male authors, by the way, um, that, that were then sort of dominant, and developments in our higher education system. How did you call it? The disimagination machine? Yeah. Yeah, that's a fantastic term. For me, in my, in my own research, I traced sort of this moment of uh, moving from this disimagination machine on a societal level to a moment in the 2000s where you start to see re-emerging indeed yeah, this need to imagine an alternative way of organizing our lives and our societies. For instance, in the arts, you, you saw that happening uh, quite a lot. And for me, the telling works of that emergence of that new structural feeling, as we as we call, is a work by David Thorpe that I uh, I often discuss, and I will do so briefly here. Especially when you compare that work by David Thorpe, "Government of the Elect," I have it here, but I'm sure that that listeners can also look it up. So, in in "Covenant of the Elect," something very interesting is happening, and that is this this sort of re-emergence of this need to imagine another. An world, or at least the possibility of another world. And that becomes extremely clear when you compare and contrast it to a work by Richard Hamilton, um, titled Just What It Is That Makes Today's Home So Appealing, So Pleasing. Um, so for me, the, this work from the, the late 50s, it is, I believe, is really a commentary on this upcoming 
consumer society. And what you see is two figures placed in a sort of self-enclosed space, a house that is spick and span and references all kinds of uh, elements from popular culture like bodybuilding, pinups, uh, television, um, new uh, emphasis on design furniture. Um, so sort of this conspicuous um, consumer society. But within this space, there is basically no futuristicity. It's completely uh, in the present. The people are also not engaging with each other, the figures that are in this, uh, this space, but are staring at you, the, the viewer. Um, while not having any form of interaction. So they're highly individualized uh, consumers in that particular sense. The title is, of course, ironically commenting on this. So just what it is that makes today's home so appealing, so pleasing, is, of course, an ironic commentary on this particular way of life. Also, the past is here bracketed, as Jameson would call it later on in his uh, work on postmodernism. Um, because it's literally outside of the self-enclosed space. Through the window you see a reference to an earlier era, the 1930s and the high point of, of Hollywood cinema and Broadway, but that is not part of the space itself. It merely is sort of a spectacle that is there because it's pleasing. When you compare this space and this way of being in time, so in this case completely absorbed within a present, to the, the spatiality and temporality of the work by David Thorpe, that is from the early 2000s, and is a clear reference, I would say, to Hamilton's work. You see that, for instance, in the sloping lines that are on the left top corner, um, the sort of plateau on, on which this commune, we assume, is being placed. Um, also the technique, collage, that is being used. So it is referencing this earlier work, but is doing so by building completely different space and spatiality with a different temporality. So what we see here is a fictional world, a fictional universe that is built out of elements that are um, referencing fictional worlds themselves, but also utopias or, or religious motives. So you see a lot of references to sci-fi, but also to um, the Far West, Eastern spirituality, Christianity. You see references to nihilism even, Nietzsche's tightrope walker, you could say. And, and, and what it is, is it is a space that is there for, yeah, as I said, what you could consider to be a commune. The title is Covenant of the Elect. So it is about uh, people that are either elected or feel that they are chosen. Uh, and they're building clearly a world that is outside of any existing civilizational environment uh, that we have now today. The point here is, is that this sort of utopian gesture, there is another way of organized society possible, consists of all these mutually exclusive fictional worlds. So you can't have cowboys and Indians in science fiction. You can't have nihilism and Christianity and, and Eastern spirituality in the same logically coherent fictional world. But yet, here it is, this proposition that cannot exist and maybe also should not exist because we also know nowadays that uh, utopian gestures and ways of telling stories, cowboys and Indians, for instance, can also lead to terrible, gruesome historical events, whether that is civilizational projects, or civilizing projects, sorry, that get rid of indigenous populations and knowledges, or inquisitions when it comes to religion, or uh, Auschwitz and the Gulag when it comes to um, all kinds of political ideologies. So. This is paradoxically a fictional world, 
a proposition that is there. We are asked to suspend our disbelief and accept the proposition, but the proposition cannot be and might not even, uh, should not even be. Um, and that is for me very interesting in terms of temporality, because what you see here is a present in which there is a gesture towards the future. There is futuristy in it, but it's actually sort of explored by going back in time and looking at all those stories that we have been telling ourselves that had this forward-looking element in it. So as the title of the conference, Back to the Future, I think you can see that very clearly in this work, but with the warning that it might not be possible and that it might be dangerous. So for me, that is a super interesting and telling example, and especially when you compare and contrast it to uh, work like that of Hamilton, of where we are today. So we see after the turn of the millennium, this contestation of this unimaginative system, but in a sort of an unsure way. So uh, there is a, certainly a utopian sort of proliferation of utopian impulses, as we call it, in, in, and we is my uh, colleague Timotheus Vermeulen and I, in an earlier article, Utopia, sort of. There is this proliferation of utopian impulses, uh, but also a clear idea that utopia as a blueprint is something that is not really desirable. And what is this impulse sort of doing? It's, for me, it is rejecting the status quo and is working through and with this, this sticky mess of the present uh, organic crisis towards what in the end will be a new hegemonic uh, formation. But the, how that will look like, we cannot know. And maybe that's for the better as we just explored. For me, another interesting parallel development has been in the field of theory or philosophy where uh, Hart and Negri, also around the turn of the millennium, um, start to explore this notion of empire versus the common, that what is common, uh, or the commons. And what is interesting here is that, according to Hart and Negri, empire projects itself as a system that is at the end of history, that is actively producing the end of history. So again, this unimaginative mode. This is it and there is no other way of doing things. Yet at the same time, they also say the, the apparatus of, of capture of empire are increasingly less able to incorporate the surplus within itself of that what is common to the multitude and that what is common to the, the modes of immaterial production and reproduction of the multitude. So there's also this sort of this neg negative definition, that's what it is, of the common as, or the commons, whatever you prefer, as a sort of utopian figure. But if you would define that positively, uh, then you could say that what we see emerging in the arts, in education, in theory, so across culture basically, is this utopian impulse to form social relations across that, uh, what is common to the multitude, in order to multiply joy in the sense of Spinoza and also to, 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 to grow our capacities to create, sustain and benefit uh, non-capitalist or even post-capitalist modes of existence. So for me, it's telling that what you describe happening in your fields, education and also uh, literary texts like science fiction, is also happening in other domains. So for me, it's clear that this meta-modern structure feeling, as, as we called it, that starts to emerge around the turn of the millennium and then becomes dominant in the 2010s, and I would argue, especially now after 
the year 2020, which has accelerated a lot of these developments uh, that we have been uh, uh, mapping, is characterized by this proliferation of utopian impulses. Um, and where it will lead us, that is another question, but that this utopian impulse is among us, is widespread and is absolutely accelerating change. Uh, that for me is, is, is clear indeed. Yeah, the comments. It, I know from your work that that is also a theme that you're exploring also in the context of education. Yeah, because w what I... Uh, thanks for that also describing uh, the images and so on. That's really uh, nice to hear. And I think a question that arises from, from also your story and, and the work that's being done is where and between whom and, and when also can these imaginations of different ways of being and of other worlds, other futures uh, take place? Because can they even take place within existing structures, within this linear, you know, modernist notion of time that is kind of suppressing a uh, notion of space, for example? And in my research, which is quite action-based, so it's uh, based on uh, my own also educational kind of design practice of a new type of education between arts and sciences is that we, and with we, I mean, we, we work in a very collaborative team from different kind of art institutions and conservatory, is to work with the ideas of both uh, the undercommons, so that's from Stefano Harnes and Fred Moten's uh, very influential book at this point, um, The Undercommons, Fugitive Planning and Black Study, and also with the idea of wildness, which is very much related, uh, I think, also to the, the undercommons. And both these ideas, I think, enable us to think about an elsewhere or a no place, which, of course, within you know, the, the concept or the definition of utopia is, is crucial, and also placing that within uh, kind of educational or in relation to educational institutions. And the undercommons we can think about as, as a break or as a radically different time space that's always there, but always elsewhere. And in a way, it doesn't really match or fit within institutional spaces, but it does exist very much in relation to them at the same time. And the aim, as also uh, Harney says, of the undercommons is not to end the troubles, but to end the world that created those particular troubles as the ones that must be opposed. And in relation to wildness, uh, which is a notion being explored by uh, Jack Halberstam, in uh, Wild Things, the Disorder with Desire from 2020, the undercommons are very much linked with the notion of wildness, which is to make common cause with those desires and non-positions that seem crazy and unimaginable. So they propose wildness in an, as an epistemology that exists not in opposition to, but outside of categorization. So as a, a way of refusing and resisting order itself and where anti-racist, anti-colonial, anti-capitalist and, and radical queer interests can, can join together uh, to both unmake worlds um, and facilitate this absence of an order or this mode of unknowing. And this has been very influential, especially when working across disciplines or even beyond disciplines and working in undisciplinary ways in, in the education that we're designing, where we have to challenge the different ways of knowing that are part of, for example, performing arts and visual arts and academia. And we are currently now working with the idea of improvisation as something which spans and goes across these different modes of knowing and also disciplinary confinements as this ephemeral, uh, fleeting space 
where these other ways of being can be kind of experimented with and, and tried out. And this also very much relates to, I think, of course, utopia as process, utopia as desire, but also just the enacting and performing of specific other ways of being, uh, these other futurities, but in the present. And also from uh, taking from queer theories, Jose Esteban Munoz, the idea of queer world making, that you know, the idea of performance is not that it's just existent and then disappears, uh, but there's actually traces that remain. And through the enactment, and he positions this, for example, in queer club nights, in art institutions, where radically different kind of shared values, you know, value systems are enacted for the time being, but which necessarily end because they have no permanent place in, in, in other in kind of hegemonic structures. But still, these give the possibility of thinking about what the future could be otherwise. And in his work, he also goes back to the future and also in related um, well, studies do this to find these moments of futurity in past performances, in past works, and to kind of excavate, I think that's also, you know, Jameson, uh, mm-hmm. to excavate these other visions and see what they can do in the moment. For me, the, the, the very fact that we can speak about utopian desires uh, and the utopian impulse in this particular manner by pointing to very concrete fields where this is very manifest and also by theorizing uh, in this particular manner about it is already such a remarkable uh, moment when you compare it to the unimagination machine that mm-hmm. has been very dominant up until the, the turn of the millennium. It's interesting that you also mentioned the notion of excavating, harking back to past moments, um, past knowledges, past stories, past narratives, past experiences. And silence narratives also specifically. Yeah, silenced. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, to, to, to sort of yeah, inform is such a boring word, but uh, maybe inspire, inform, uh, enthuse, uh, infuse this utopian, uh, not even the impulse, but the knowledge of this impulse and how it can be enacted in current forms of improvisation, uh, experimentation, but the like of improvisation that you use, in order to envision or enact in the now this, this, this future-oriented moment. So you see in both of our descriptions, me of that work of David Thorpe and you, what you now describe, mm-hmm. um, this sort of odd temporar- temporality <laughs> in which you indeed hark back in order to uh, move forward. That's um, a very dynamic regime of historicity that we see emerging. Uh, yeah, and I think here it's also very important to acknowledge the spatiality also mm-hmm. of this in the present. So that we uh, you know, are very careful to avoid the idea of you know, this linear historicity, mm-hmm. uh, but look at this multiplicity also of, yeah. of spaces have, you know, being in the present, you yeah. know, this multidimensionality. Uh, of kind of, you know, Doreen Massey with simultaneity of story so far. Yeah, Yeah, especially because we see that also partly in a response to this moment of the end of history, the way that empire projects itself. Uh, It's interesting. It's one of James's more inspired, uh, most inspired dialectical inversions. He says that the end of history is not about time at all. Rather, it's about space. It's about this space that is completely incorporated within the logical capital with all its implicit racisms and sexisms and um, sort of modes to render the imagination uh, null uh, and, and, and void. 
Yeah, it, it is about this space and that space is clearly cracking open. And we start to experiment also with this new temporalities, these new spatialities. Yeah, the dynamism of it. Yeah. Was specifically also this space. Yeah. yeah. What I'm very curious to, to see, but that is for the coming years. Um, so I said we are now in sort of an organic crisis of the previous hegemonic settlements. So sort of the, the neoliberal end of history, um, unregulated capitalism and but organized markets, everything is organized in markets. Well, this moment, that's in crisis, clearly. And we're moving now towards a new hegemonic settlement. This stems full of hope. Hope is maybe not the right word, but a sort of optimism and joy, and also the joy of growing our capacities mm. to imagine other forms of life and other modes of existence. But meanwhile, in the 2010s, we have seen sort of in this war of position, this, this, this creation of a new hegemonic project, a lot of moving away from sort of the liberal, de liberal democratic, neoliberal movement to even a hyper-conservative right-wing zombie neoliberal moment with fascist overtones. That might as well be, as well, the not yet, the hegemonic formation to come. Yeah, the dystopian within the utopian. Yeah. <laughs> How are we going to harness and cultivate and canalize all these utopian desires and impulses into the formation of a hegemonic settlement that is still not post-capitalist, probably, but is minimizing the violence it does to bodies and to the planet. A sort of a social democratic, ecologist, hegemonic settlement. That for me is still the big question because it's harking back to the notion of the common and the commons. That's also often fought in sort of very horizontal manners, horizontal assemblages. And how we, do we go from all these particulars to something that is also vertically translated into a new political consensus that can feed into this new hegemonic settlement that is more progressive than the settlement that we might currently are going to be trapped in for the next uh, 20 to 30 years. For me, that's just an open question. And, uh, yeah, may maybe that also relates or begs the question, what are the eventual shortcomings of focusing just on utopia as process, as utopia as impulse. And of course, there's been a, a fear of going back or you know, keeping our distance very much from the idea of utopia's blueprint, because of course, all the horrors uh, that happened in the 20th century because of this. And, but maybe it's, it's a question now of where does utopia's process or as impulse bring us and what else do we need? Mm. Uh, in addition, or where does that go, or how does that come together again in, in some sort of vision or something that is slightly coherent, even if temporary again? Yeah, no, sure. It's, uh, universal is always temporary, yeah. but it has the capacity to bind alliances. So, yeah, that for me is indeed a question how to translate this utopian energy into sort of a pragmatics of creating alliances that can be historic blocks that can serve as the foundation for a new. Hegemonic settlement that is yeah, an improvement over the one we have left. And certainly has much more imagination, so we can really make the step towards a post-capitalist life. Thank you, Tamara. Thank you, Lily.
That was Tamara de Groot and Robin van den Acker. Next up, Raphael Cabo gives us one possible answer to Robin's question. How might we harness these utopian impulses? Raphael Cabo completed his thesis at Birkbeck in late 2019. In it, he explored the representation of utopian spaces as a form of opposition to capitalism in post-2008 literature and poetry. He's a co-founder of the Utopian Acts Research Network and the Beyond Gender Research Collective. Outside of academia, he works on coding utopian online social networks. Here is Raphael now with his paper, A Constellation of Commons. In this episode, I want to think about commons. What are commons? Commons are spaces for sharing, for collective labour, and for communal imagining. As physical spaces for communal grazing and agriculture, which are owned by a group of commoners, commons have existed in Europe since at least the time of the Roman Empire. From the 16th century, the process of enclosure in Europe broke up, took over, and destroyed most of our common land. It transformed the commoners who relied on them into an army of industrial factory workers. But the commons have held on. Across the global south, water, fishing areas and grazing land are all still frequently held in common. The internet provides spaces for new virtual commons. But the commons I'm most interested in are those which have appeared in contemporary literature in the last ten years, in novels and in poetry, which I call commons utopias. These are the texts about which I wrote my PhD, which I finished in late 2019. Since I finished my PhD, I have been constantly drawn back to the pandemic, which has defined the last year and a half of all of our lives. We are living through a crisis, a time of individuation, of separation, of loss. And as with many crises, the threat of the pandemic is being turned into deadly precarity by capitalism exposing those of us who are already more vulnerable to its full force while diminishing its effects for those that capitalism deems worthy. Is there a space for commons in a time like this? How do we go about building a better world within the shell of a catastrophe? What would such commons look like? What I'm talking about here is a constellation of commons, a set of points which are linked across time, across distance and imagination. For those many of us who have lost friends, family members, jobs, income, mental wellness and a sense of life lived free of perpetual, everyday, ongoing crisis, the COVID-19 pandemic feels like the real-world arrival of a dystopian fiction. For those of us who have participated in and supported the huge globally distributed protest movements for which 2020 will, I hope, be remembered, these include Black Lives Matter, the protest movements in Belarus and, the, and Hong Kong, chief among them, the last year has felt both utopian and dystopian in different fundamental ways. The crises and activist movements that my thesis explores are those of the decade 2008 to 2019. None of these imagine the world in a grip of a pandemic. At the same time, many of the concerns, anxieties and hopeful dreams these texts reveal will be very familiar to us as we live through the current crisis. Kim Stanley Robinson's New York 2140 explores financial crisis, grassroots mutual aid societies, and the transition to ecological sustainability in the wake of a profound planetary shock, what 
Rebecca Solnit calls a disaster utopia, and what Out of the Woods Collective has christened disaster communism. Mohsin Hamid's Exit West offers a utopian vision of what migrancy and population flight would look like if movement were instantaneous and universally accessible. In the wake of the vast profits reaped this year by those multi-billionaires who have capitalized on the COVID-19 crisis, in part as a result of the readiness with which governments offload vital medical services to the private sector, the call of Cory Doctorow's walkaway to break free from the entrapping cycles of capitalism feels ever more salient. Lydia Yuknavich's The Book of Joan deals with human bodies in the wake of a biological crisis so fundamental that the word plague does not do it justice. Yuknavich too asks us to consider what sort of crises open the doors to utopia and what sort of beings should be allowed to inherit the worlds which come next. All of these texts, alongside Juliana Spar's poetry collection That Winter the Wolf Came and Bong Joon-ho's film Snowpiercer, see commons as best suited to weather a variety of crises and help us imagine forms of life beyond capitalism. The protests which swept across the world this year as a result of the murder of George Floyd and the anti-dictatorship protests in Belarus and Hong Kong also have their seeds in the preceding decade of activism and riot even as their targets are, sadly, in many ways new. Rebecca Solnit describes this decade as a time in which hope is no longer fixed on the future. It becomes an electrifying force in the present. Social movements in utopian literature are very closely linked. Utopian literature adopts the imagined worlds of activist movements and pushes them beyond the present, where they're taken up again by activists in a productive cycle of energy and resistance. I call this form of continual dialogue between the present and its possible futures the ongoing future. These texts that I'm talking about then remind us that the COVID-19 pandemic has not simply created a new global crisis, it has exacerbated existing crises. It has twisted them into new shapes and it's opened new fissures in the shell of the present through which the future can escape. What kinds of spaces become utopian in moments of crisis? When I talk of constellations, I think about a study from November 2020, which suggested that during 2020, a decrease in atmospheric nitrogen and PM10 particles, which scatter ground light back to the earth, along with fewer cars on the roads, led to a 20 to 45% decrease of light pollution above the city of Granada in Spain. I think about a repeating motif in Exit West, a set of photographs of major cities at night, their skies digitally replaced with the skies of locations on the same latitude, which are unlit by human light. When I talk of constellations, I think on the words of feminist social geographer Doreen Massey. In Massey's view, spaces are not containers within which places are neatly placed, and places themselves are not unique and individual. Rather, she writes, spaces a product of relations where place, in consequence, is necessarily meeting place, where the difference of a place must be conceptualized more in the ineffable sense of the constant emergence of uniqueness out of the specific constellations of interrelations within which that place is set, and what is made by us of that constellation. It is constellations, in other words, which give their stars meanings. Elsewhere in this luminous book, 
Massey describes places as a simultaneity of stories so far, a snapshot in time of the layers and layers of knots tied by the constant tangles of humans and non-humans at a particular location. This, in turn, makes me think of Donna Haraway's lifelong fascination with the string game Cat's Cradle. An analogy for creation and thought, the constantly shifting patterns of cat's cradles are not about conclusion or completion, but about weaving and inventing, creating, collaborating, cohabiting a place together, creating constellations on fingertips. These worlds, in Haraway's words, are not containers, they are patternings, risky co-makings, speculative fabulations. And from here, via Haraway, I come to Ursula Le Guin's carrier bag theory of fiction, which replaces the spear and sword of heroic fantasy with the slow collection and fresh arrangement of fragments of worlds in the carrier bag, naturally woven from string, the tool that brings energy home. Far from a static container, the purpose of Le Guin's carrier bag is neither resolution nor stasis, but continuing process. And of course, Le Guin concludes her essay. Still, there are seeds to be gathered and room in the bag of stars, which is a better name for constellation than anything I could come up with. It is not only 2020 that has reduced some of our worlds to rooms, to hospital beds and to gardens, while forcing others of us without these luxuries to travel further and more dangerously than ever before, just to stay afloat. These exacerbations and extensions of a double-edged crisis have been gathering for decades, with the normalization of neoliberalism, marketization, and privatization as everyday life. As we are forced further apart, we need to tie more strings of constellations between ourselves to reinforce our desires for the collective and the communal. We need a constellation of commons. These might not be and perhaps cannot be spatial commons, and indeed many of the commons I examined in my thesis were not. Likewise, they might not look like utopias at first, but in all these texts, utopias emerge from within the capitalist system to eventually tear it apart. They are disaster utopias, born of crisis and of necessary survival. In Juliana Spar's poetry collection, That Winter the Wolf Came, a commons of collective feeling is formed in the moment of riot in the act of building a barricade against the cops in a park in 2011. And even though we know that this commons will fail, Spa holds on to the possibility that another one will rise in its place. In New York 2140, commons, co-ops and collectives are what save the city from destruction during an all-too-plausible climate crisis. In Exit West and Walkaway, commons are formed in the act of movement, of never staying in one place because mobility itself becomes a utopian act. That may seem like a bitter pill to swallow at the moment, but also in Walkaway and in the Book of Joan, commons are gloriously digital and post-human, offering a utopia of science fictional collective being in the form of mind uploads, of DNA absorption, of energy transfer. This jumbled bag of disparate, unique commons is brought together into a constellation by all of their authors' fascination with utopian futures and with the possibility that these futures could begin to be realized today. 
It is this shared belief in alternative ways out of capitalism which, to me, makes him so valuable to us right now. Precarity, even when it holds open utopian possibility, destroys lives, something we have become acutely aware of in this last year and a half. In writing my thesis, I was reminded many times that transformation is dangerous and it's always destructive. But the worlds we inhabit are dangerous and destructive too, especially for those of us exposed to the sharp ends of their multiple overlapping crises. The texts I examined in this study reminded me that the other worlds born as a result of such transformations are never clean slates but always carry with them the scars of their own emergence. Acutely aware of the material conditions of their own creation, these commons utopias build better worlds within disaster in the hopes of reaching beyond it. For this reason, despite the profound challenges of the past year and a half, I know with all of my heart that the current crisis only serves to unite us in greater numbers and with growing resolve against our common enemies of alienation, precarity, inequality and ecological catastrophe. Raphael, Tamara and Robin engaged in a panel discussion at the Congress, which I chaired. The conversation focused on spatiality, on education, on the difference between world building and world making, and on the importance of both utopian vision and process in order to avoid, as Robin van den Acker calls it purposefully and forcefully, a clusterfuck of world historical proportions. Here is the discussion now. Please bear in mind that we recorded this live on Zoom. So to get started, maybe um, if you want to maybe ask our speakers to respond to each other, Robin, if you want to maybe start us off with, um, did you see any structure of feeling or a metamodernist structure of feeling in Raphael's paper? Well, I'm first going to respond as I always do when people ask me directly to map the work of others. And that is that I really don't like to pigeonhole artists, neither academics. Um, I think the very fact that we have this conference with this theme and, and this panel with this theme um, already speaks for the, the historical moment in which we find ourselves. And uh, as some of you might know, for me, that historical moment is very much tied to the, the emergence of the metamodern structure of feeling in the 2000s and uh, it, it becoming dominant in the decades since. Development that I think has also been, and that is something that Rafael also rightfully pointed out, has been exacerbated by the 2020 uh, uh, Anus Miserabilis. Um, and um, so, yeah, that's where I think, what I think I can say about that. Uh, but I noticed so many uh, overlap with what Raphael was uh, was discussing on especially what Tamara as well was bringing in uh, notions of spatiality, for instance, uh, that it seems like space popped open. Um, so the, also the authors that both of you are, are, are reading and, and, and discussing uh, sort of the science fiction, but also the, the new materialist uh, authors. So yeah, I, I think there's a lot of uh, food for uh, thought and discussion. Great, thank you. Um, Raphael, maybe I'll hand over to you quickly to respond to the conversation or to uh, respond to what Robin just said, and I don't want to pigeonhole anything or anyone. 
<laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed, as I mentioned, I really enjoyed um, listening to um, your discussion, um, Robin Tamara. I um, was particularly delighted by the fact that we both mentioned, I think Tamara and I both mentioned Doreen Massey, who is just, I love Doreen Massey. Um, she's a wonderful um, human geographer, uh, was. Um, and I also was delighted. I think there was there was one bit, um, Robin, where you were talking about um, one of the pieces of art and you were talking about sort of this strange juxtaposition of this, you know, like racist cowboys and Indians kind of aesthetic with, um, with, with science fiction. And it reminded me there's a bit in Darko Suvin's work. Um, Darko Suvin was one of uh, sort of the, the, the people who developed the idea of um, reading science fiction as a, in terms of literary analysis. Um, in the 20th century, and uh, he he's very critical of some science fiction, and he described, I think, space operas as essentially cowboys, cowboys and Indians type type stories with ray guns. Um, so I thought that worked really well. Uh, yeah, I think there's loads to loads to discuss, um, and loads of really interesting parallels between our work. I thought um, the idea of education is really interesting to me as well, and the idea of this kind of utopian education. That's something that I was thinking about in, uh, in my PhD, but never got to fully explore, I guess, or fully understand. So it was really interesting listening to Tamara's comments on that. Mm. Well, yeah, back. I guess we'll get to education in, in just a minute, but you've both mentioned space now and spatiality. So I wonder if that's the theme we should maybe start with. And I was really struck by your, by your line, Raphael, that um, commons need not, indeed cannot be spatial. And I wonder if you want to maybe expand on that briefly, and then I'd be curious to hear what, what Robin and Tamara have to say about that, whether they need to, cannot be, or can be spatial. That is a bold statement I made, and um, I believe I was quite nervous when recording the podcast, so potentially I didn't mean it. But no, look, I, I, um, I think that it's quite difficult for common it's quite difficult to square a traditional understanding of common spaces as they are understood historically, you know, I mean, originally sort of a, a space for grazing or for um, communal arable land, uh, which is which has clear bounds and is, is shared by a, a sort of specific group of commoners. Like you can't just wander off into someone else's commons um, and use their land, that would be rude. But I think it's quite difficult to square that very traditional historical conception of commons with, with how commons are being used now and what kinds of um, ideas and, and spaces are being used as commons. Um, so I think that's sort of what I was gesturing to. It, In my heart of hearts, I would love for all commons to be spatial. Um, it's why I found uh, protests like Tahrir Square, um, like uh, Gezi Park in, um, in Turkey, like Occupy, the Occupy movement, uh, particularly interesting because they are rare examples within the 21st century, I think, of anti-capitalist, very anti-capitalist um, commons. I mean, the stuff happening, the, the commons in the Middle East are far more complicated than just being anti-capitalist, but Occupy, for instance, um, and the, um, the oh, I forgot the name, the protests, the Dakota River Pipeline Extension protests um, in America. I, are quite unique, I think, because they are both spaces, obvious spaces where people live, they work together, they 
they communicate together, they're anti-capitalists and they, they also within them incorporate other kinds of commons like internet commons or like reading commons or like art commons. Uh, but I feel like those are few and far between. So I guess we have to pick and choose uh, the commons we concentrate on. That's sort of what I was aiming at, I think. Cool, thanks. Um, right, before I get to Tamara, Robin, I wonder if you might put that in relation with your statement about um, that you take from, from Jason, the end of history is not really the end of, of time, but the end of space and how that might play to spatiality. Yeah, the, the, the Jameson quote is, um, the end of history is not about time at all, but rather it, it is about space, um, dialectical inversion, a bit of fun poking as well, but the, 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 the goal of this statement is to point out that um, for Jameson under late capitalism, and especially in the 90s, where when he wrote the essay from which this, uh, this quote is being taken, um, um, capital has enveloped the, the globe completely. There's no, uh, capital is in every nook and cranny of the globe. Um, um, so for him, um, this is uh, setting the stage for, uh, yeah, the, another level of analysis. And that is that, yes, it's completely globalized, but it also means that our life world, so on the level of daily life, we're also completely incorporated by capital. Um, meaning that it's, 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 it's very hard to imagine uh, a life that is post-capitalist or different from a capitalist daily life, right? Uh, he says, this means literally that our uh, historical imagination is blocked uh, in this situation. And that's why it's such a useful uh, entry point. So this um, ideological cipher of the end of history into contradistincting um, uh, our uh, experience of daily life and our uh, and the, the, the very sort of ways in which we could imagine uh, our lives to be uh, from uh, the, the, the period of postmodernism uh, and now, because um, when I now make these statements, they seem completely out of touch with what is going on actually all around us. Um, but it, it, it was also necessary sort of, um, in hindsight, a sort of necessary uh, moment, this, this sort of globalization of, of capital and complete colonization of our life world with capital, because it also is a, a, a yeah, a sort of jump in our technical capacities, technological abilities, uh, the, the abilities to connect with each other from which uh, in sort of the narrowly defined uh, sense, uh, the commons first re-emerged, namely on the internet with things like uh, Wikipedia, for instance, um, and, and, and the creative commons licenses uh, are there to sort of the legal manifestation of it. Um, but, um, to uh, and also it, it feels completely uh, old-fashioned because yeah we we clearly have moved beyond this end of history um, this 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 sort of blocked historical imagination is uh, unblocked nowadays and that has of course to do with the, the conditions that were put in place in the 2000s uh, that's uh, I don't think it's a decade but as a period uh, just as Jameson would point to the 60s as a period where the necessary preconditions for the for the postmodern cultural logic uh, uh, emerged and, and were set. Um, I think maybe Raphael means that uh, the commons do not, cannot be pinpointed in terms of location. Uh, and that it's only when these eruptions are there the in, 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 during protest movements 
that you can see its physical manifestation. Um, um, in terms of uh, spatiality, and also going back to this point about this, this space that is completely colonized and, and, and has completely has been incorporated by capital. Um, if you look at a work like Hartenegri's uh, work on, on, on empire, um, they would say that the commons and that what is common to the multitude is everywhere and nowhere. Um, and, and, and that it's not sort of absent uh, and only erupts during protest movement, that is literally everywhere and nowhere at the same time, um, meaning that it's the, it's, 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 it has become the, the fuel and sort of the, the raw material for our um, uh, capitalist uh, political economy. Namely, the immaterial production that goes into um, uh, sort of the, the, the dominant way in which uh, enterprises are making a profit nowadays, uh, seen from the perspective of empire. Um, so yeah, that would be my sort of uh, reflection on, on, on this. Thank you. I wonder if Tamara, if you want to come in now, especially because also I'm aware that you use bell hooks and the classroom as a utopian space. So I wonder if, if you might expand on that and put in relation to what's been said, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. First of all, I think it's for me very useful to think in terms of uh, the commons as, you know, a set of practices, sets of practices, uh, uh, sets of relations uh, that we always have to consider uh, actually also with you know, where they are uh, situated um, and to always try to acknowledge the multiplicity inherent to them as well. And I think this relates very clearly to the idea of, uh, well, the utopian classroom, if we can call it that, or the possibility, you know, of utopia in the classroom and how we can uh, work towards this, which uh, also, you know, from, from hooks and also what I really try to do and in my own educational practice and, and the way in which I design education is to allow for all voices to, to be heard. Um, and this is of course no easy feat. And um, the, the way in which I, well, I have to say actually not I, but we, how we make, because I always work in a very uh, collaborative team of educators. And we also try to um, blur the boundaries between student and teacher, for example. Um, is to collect and to facilitate the space in which all these voices can be heard. And very specifically, uh, because I do work a lot with science fiction also in, in teaching and so on, but also in thinking about how we can create these type of spaces um, is to uh, allow for multiple futurities and um, different futures to emerge. And that's also through the engagement very specifically with uh, many different visions of what futures could be. Uh, and that's relying on, uh, well, many of the amazing uh, science fiction authors uh, that uh, diverge from kind of mainstream white heteronormative uh, science fiction. And um, that really informs how I work and how the students start to work if you kind of integrated in, in, in that in those ways. And I think that also for me relates very much to this idea of you know what uh, Doreen Massey puts forward with in, in terms of um, opening up the future uh, in spatial terms uh, and uh, making that a part of the classroom. So I try to find you know these different levels 
between uh, how we can think about uh, histories and futures and presents uh, and how this also flows back into our pedagogical approach uh, and, and the practices that we together build in, in the classroom. Did you want to respond to that, Raphael, or? Uh, yeah, I just, um, I really, I'm really interested in the um, education stuff because um, in my PhD, I looked at authors, um, you know, who are writing sort of post hoc. Um, and I was sort of angling at sort of the ways that these authors might be wanting to or ending up educating um, or changing minds uh, of their of their readership. Um, in these sort of utopian ways, angling towards a utopian them towards utopian futures, but that's a very kind of like that's that's two steps back from actual educational, I think, pedagogical practice, and it's really really heartening, I think, to to hear that kind of thing. Um, it's I I want to um, highlight uh, Tamari. You might be really interested in my very brilliant friend Katie Stone um, has finished a PhD on children and utopia and uh it sort of tries to reclaim this um this children from this kind of idea of this perfection or innocence and it's about using children curiosity um as a way of looking into the future um so just look out for for katie's brilliant work uh in the future but i um i also uh was interested because i don't know if you've read the work of I forgot her name. Um, come back to me when I remember this person's name. But she wrote about um, utopias in the real world, including in um, school settings. Davina Cooper, I think. Thank you. Yes, Davina Cooper. Yes. <laughs> Whose work I also find really interesting because she's got this lovely turn about prefiguration and about how specifically in like classroom settings you can prefigure um, these sort of new worlds um, using the elements of the current world and move forward towards towards that new world, even as you're building it, which of course comes from um, anarchist political theory, I suppose, more generally. Yeah. Which I think is a wonderful thing to do um, in a classroom. Yeah, I, I was always intrigued by world building. And then at one point, I also moved more to the, the notion of world making, uh, which I sure, we surely discuss also in the podcast, um, of which the emphasis uh, well, it also moves away from kind of imperial connotations of world building, even though many science fiction authors who you know use the tools of world building don't necessarily uh, reinforce those. But um, world making as a much more uh, ephemeral, uh, temporary, temporary moment, you know, that you can kind of enact together. And I've really tried to translate this into very specific practices within the classroom, uh, for example, because we work uh, really across kind of, uh, uh, well, uh, academic education and uh, performing arts and visual arts um, in India. So that's also another challenge and really kind of going across these disciplinary boundaries. Um, maybe Julien for later when you want to make the link with undisciplinarity. <laughs> um, and so we tr what we try to do is uh, to embody a different set of values uh, with the students and throughout kind of a, a workshop to see and enact this and the effects that this has on students in the space, the, the different type of space that is temporarily created in the classroom has, has quite some effects on, on um, 
how they see themselves in the world. So it's it's this act of uh, estrangement, you know, which is also darker even. Um, uh, but it also allows for this construction, uh, at least temporarily, of these different worlds and, and to really experience them and not just kind of envision them and have them exist, you know, uh, uh, at a distance. And I find that quite a, yeah. So thank you, Raphael, for, for creating that link in my mind. <laughs> I was I was just, I was thinking yesterday about this, the idea of the difference between world building versus world making that you highlighted so nicely. And it, it kind of feels to me like the difference between um, creating a world via a blueprint for your characters to inhabit, you know, I guess from a, more from a creative writing kind of perspective versus exploring a world together with your characters, you know, which is like, and seeing what your characters discover in the world. Um, and I, yeah, I think, I think uh, it's, it's delightful and very, um, very inspiring. Thank you. Just a quick reminder to our audience, if you have any questions, feel free to post them in the chat or raise your hand. Um, but meanwhile, Thank you for saying that, Raphael, because that leads me on to my maybe a bit more challenging question to take that role of the devil's advocate. Um, because if we look at, at world making and at utopia as a process, um, isn't there also a danger? I think, Robin, you also start to address it a little bit um, in terms of dangers of where that might lead us if we don't have a blueprint. Um, I think, Robin, you mentioned sort of the re-emergence also of sort of fascist overtones and nationalism and more exclusive kinds of utopia for some people anyway um so is there is that partly the challenge that this this idea of, of utopia as a process and a world making brings with it Tamara, you had uh, some thoughts about this right well, actually, we, we started to get into this yesterday, uh, Robert and I also, because of, of the podcast. And um, I mean, for, for a few decades, uh, particularly, of course, after uh, 1989, the people kept very far away from the notion of utopia as blueprint, um, this totalizing, you know, uh, well, you know what that means. Um, and now slowly you start to see kind of a call indeed is, is exactly what you're saying, Julianne, for, you know, well, for where does this lead us? You know, is this enough uh, to just focus on utopia's process? And, and I, I don't think it is. Um, I think it's a very good starting point. And I think, you know, all the notions that come with it are extremely important to keep. Um, and I don't have a very good answer for this because it's indeed a very difficult question. Um, but I find, and then thinking, you know, of all the kind of science fiction literature that I read that proposes, you know, this plethora of all these different visions uh, that can can also exist next to each other and also kind of talk to each other and, and kind of um, uh, make or produce things by existing next to each other. I think uh, those are crucial. And, and the same goes within the educational context. Um, you know, if, if we think about a utopian pedagogy without a true, you know, a clear vision of, of what that could look like, then what, what are we doing? So, and again, when I try to do this also in, um, in, in the education that I make, uh, it's this constant tension between the need for structure and the need for something to kind of work towards, but always keeping that openness uh, and provisionality uh, that allows for, you know, uh, um, well, kind of this abundance of different futures of, you know, uh, all the different voices and so on. And we've recently started to work uh, because we've been working with the notion of transdisciplinarity, but 
we've been started to work with improvisation uh, as an idea that could also answer some of these questions because, well, first of all, it means many different, it can be used as a concept, as a practice, um, as a product. Uh, but what it does, it allows for uh, that temporality, that provisionality, uh, the ephemeral, uh, but at the same time, highly referential to and informed by existing structures and, and ways of doing things. And in that it creates one time after the other, these spaces where these new things can, can be enacted. And for me, that's a very, uh, it, it's an impossible position and the tension remains. And I think that tension should be there. But I think it's indeed, I don't agree with just focusing on this utopias process and relinquishing this idea of, of uh, utopias blueprints or as vision. I think for me, that's a better good term to think about it. But I'm curious what the other two uh, to say about this. Yeah, as am I, especially Robin, maybe um, may hear your, the notion of the pendulum swinging that you describe in, in notes on metamodernism of this tension between the modern and the postmodern sort of not quite knowing where to land. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think Tamara rightly pointed out that for a very long time we have, there was both not a need for um, sort of uh, historical imagination uh, to, to, to sort of re-emerge uh, from the perspective of the global north. I would say, right, when, when everything seemed to be going hunky-dory, increasingly more peace, more wealth, etc. Um, but again, from the perspective of the global north and, and not taking into account what was actually happening, the, the, the blood and the tears uh, that are the, the, the that were simply out of sight. Um, so, um, um, but now in the current, under the current conditions and with the current structure of feeling, um, you see that this uh, historical imagination um, and this utopian impulse re-emerge. Um, what we have been seeing uh, as a resu result is, the is a contestation of the sort of previous hegemonic uh, settlement, uh, as, as I also said in, 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 the, in the podcast, um, resulting in an uh, organic crisis, basically. Um, within this crisis, we see and the proliferation of this utopian sort of practices, impulses, wishes, uh, desires. Um, so that's very encouraging. Um, but as you rightly pointed out, there are also utopias that are rather exclusive. Um, uh, and, and, and these utopias have been uh, actually first sort of, um, yeah, past, not first past the post, but they, they, they started this race the fastest, as it were. Uh, so uh, taking advantage of everything that becomes fluid during an organic, organic crisis. We have been drifting um, slowly towards an historical block uh, that is even more conservative, even more uh, into uh, zombie uh, neoliberalism, even more into precarity and has fashion overtones. Yes, absolutely. Um, it is in an, in an article that I wrote with my colleague Julian Klug, um, we had to conclude that um, sort of the, 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 yeah, the cultural debate um, about the, the, the direction of where we should be going has been hijacked by uh, yeah, an increasingly uh, fascist discourse uh, that you can run along the lines of the NSDAP um, to put it out. It's nationalist, it's socialist, for your, for your own group, yeah, that's why it's inclusive. It's about uh, the national identity. Um, it's about the 
worker, uh, but only the hardworking, taxpaying um, person, uh, and not everybody else. And it's about uh, uh, strong leaders in, in, in parties. And that is, uh, I hate to say this to my friends in the UK, uh, happening in the UK, that is happening in Hungary, that's happening in Holland. Um, yes, it has been happening with Trump. There is a real risk that the next historical block and the next hegemonic settlement is going to look like this. We're not there yet, thank God. Um, but yeah, my problem is um, these utopian impulses are all scattered. They're all quite local. They all, especially 10 years ago around the Occupy moments, they all insisted on horizontality. Forgetting that there is also the need to go vertical. Get your ass in parliament. That's where laws are being made. Um, that is that slowly starts to change. Um, um, but yeah, we need sort of. That's why I think Tamara and I had this discussion. Yes, as process is nice, horizontal is nice. But if you don't have a, a clear idea of where you need to go as a progressive movement and who your allies are and what your shared interests are and how you can realize your goals namely through parliamentary means in this historical context um, and, and on what the terms are and the parameters uh, like equality like uh, making sure that there is a, an earth that our grandchildren can inherit no small feat um, we are facing as i always say and i use this word on purpose a clusterfuck of world historical proportions and it's a, cluster, it's a cluster because inequality and climate crisis are cl a cluster. Those are a result of neoliberal policies and capitalist exploitation. Uh, I use the word F, the F word on purpose because it's not an accident. It's not uh, like a, a hurricane that is happening or a volcano that burst. No, this is being done to us by policymakers. Right, so that, that is also the level where we need to achieve things. Uh, and it's world historical because if we have to, if we deal, seriously engage and deal with these um, major issues, society will look differently. And that is the vision that we should have. And that is, I think, where uh, my sort of uh, call and the discussion that Tamara and I had come from yeah, horizontality and utopia's process is fine, but please some verticality and some vision of where you need to go and how to get there. Thank you. Um, so we had a question from Diane in the chat, which I think you've just addressed. Um, so Diane, shout if you if you are not satisfied, and we'll ask it again. But in the meantime, Dolores has a question as well, so I'll hand over to her. And I'm aware we're running low on time, so um, that might be the only one we can take. I'm afraid. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, it always is running over time. Um, yeah, it's a question actually to Tamara, and please forgive me for my um, ooh, sort of anger actually, because I'm an ex-teacher in East London. Um, I stopped teaching in East London in 1993. I was in an incredibly progressive English department where we ran the National at night and um, basically it was about progressive teachings of English where it was very integrated learning in terms of practice and sort of theory if you like. Um, but I have to say you talk about the classroom as a sort of generic space 
And the classroom is not, <laughs> I'm afraid, a generic space. It can be a space for you know, infants, it can be a space for juniors, it can be a space for secondary school students, it can be a university space, it can be a practice-based space, it can be an academic-based space, it can be a science lab, it can be a variety of spaces. Um, and also these spaces are located within other spaces that are, you know, basically geographically and geopolitically scattered, right? And I understand that your thing is utopia. I really understand that this is about utopias. But I think that there comes a problem with all of this. And in fact, um, the guy who was just talking um, from Rotterdam, he sort of touched on it at the very end there about the lack of the vertical, uh, the, the lack of the vertical nature of understanding all of this. Because none of this utopia, none of this sort of idealism can have any effect whatsoever, I'm afraid to say, unless there is government policy that in some way supports or just lets things happen. <laughs> so the situation, you know, when I was teaching, um, it was a much looser curriculum and we were able to manipulate that very creatively. The, the, cur the curriculum now is not loose at all and the directives are all about teaching by rote getting people through exams uh, you know sort of league tables etc which is why I left and I left about yeah 20 odd years ago now and many of my progressive colleagues left too so I'm really sorry I know there's no time no, that's okay I just want to give um, Tamara yeah. a brief minute or two to respond and then I'm going to have to wrap up I'm afraid I think this also exemplifies the tension very well, right, between uh, utopian thinking and visions and, and the, the realities of the everyday um, and the negotiations that have to take place there. And, and for me, it's also a bit of a question of scale, you know, because I completely agree, I think, to allow kind of on a, you know, the scale that, that perhaps I am talking about for this to happen, uh, government has to interfere, space has to be given, time has to be created. But I also think that, um, through very small kind of interventions, a quite large uh, things can also be be changed or be kind of transformative for students on any type of level. Uh, and I think in terms of you know uh, having having students feel that they can can share uh, in in different ways or the fact that uh, the the ways in which we learn all of a sudden becomes apparent. Uh, and is something that might be negotiated in the classroom. I mean, you know, and, and I can think of, of, of many uh, different uh, kind of very small niche, uh, you know, adaptations that can be made uh, can give a very, a kind of give a radically different experience of, of what a, a classroom is, but also just to negotiate what, what is the classroom or, you know, what does it mean to learn and, and you know, where, or with Harney and Moten's notion of study um, of, you know, uh, kind of as opposed to learning within the confines of the institution um, and actually study ha happening everywhere, you know, when we engage in conversation and so on. So perhaps it's also about uh, opening up the, the, the notion of the classroom and, and multiplying this. Um, and I, I realize that doesn't really offer much, uh, it doesn't solve the larger issues in this way. Um, but I think a lot can be possible on a very 
kind of practical and small level uh, to start bringing up or making explicit the ways in which these structures exist uh, and that might or might not uh, lead to larger changes as well. Yeah, I guess that's all I can offer. <laughs> Thank you very much. Sorry, I'm afraid we're, we're out of time Thank now. You. Thank you, Dolores, for your question. Um, and I think, I mean, that was probably the best we could hope for is to start a conversation and to um, uh, raise questions and get people to think about it. So thank you to uh, three of our speakers for doing that and for being here to take questions. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for this nice moment. Thank you so much. Bye bye. That's it for this special episode of the Technicast. We hope you enjoyed it and are left with a feeling of optimism in spite of it all, but also with much food for thought. Thanks to Tamara de Groot, Robin van den Acker and Raphael Cabo for their contributions. The Technicast is a bi-weekly podcast where Polly Hember and myself, Julien Klein, invite academics, researchers and artists to present their work. If you like this episode, please consider subscribing on your podcasting app. It would also mean a lot to us if you shared it with one or two friends. Thanks to Techne for their support and on behalf of the Technicast team, thank you for listening. See you next time.